Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 176. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, like I mentioned last week, it's Lovecraft Month here on the Drabblecast, and we've got three commissioned original stories inspired by the Lovecraft mythos, written by three of our favorite authors to share with you folks. This week's story, Cinderlands by Tim Pratt. But first, a little Drabble appetizer. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble comes to us from Nathan Lee, and it's called Parting the Veil. Nathan's a Drabble master, as far as I'm concerned. He's had work on the show several times, and he's got a very prolific blog of 100-word stories at www.mirrorshards.org. You should definitely go give it a gander. Kathy found her Diet Cherry Dr. Pepper in the back of the break room refrigerator, crowded away by the other lunches. She stretched to her limit and carefully threaded it through the maze of bottles and thermoses. She'd almost succeeded when she jostled someone's paper sack. It fell to the floor with a hollow sound. The bag was curiously light when she picked it up. She glanced around and then opened the top to peer inside. A shaped styrofoam insert. A prop. Why would someone need a prop lunch? Kathy told herself the sudden chill was just the air conditioning kicking in. The fact that uncertainty and danger are always closely allied makes any kind of unknown world a world of peril and evil possibilities. Lovecraft wrote that in his 1927 paper entitled Supernatural Horror in Literature, in which he goes on to say, Man's first instincts and emotions formed his response to the environment in which he found himself. Definite feelings based on pleasure and pain grew up around the phenomena whose causes and effects he understood, whilst around those which he did not understand were naturally woven sensations of awe and fear. The one test of the really weird, he says, is simply this. Whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread and of contact with unknown spheres and powers, a subtle attitude of awed listening, as if for the beating of black wings or the scratching of outside shapes and entities of the known universe's utmost rim. And it's in that spirit that we come to this week's story, Cinderlands by Tim Pratt. 
Tim's work is all over the place right now. You've heard him here on the show plenty of times, and you've heard us talk about Marla Mason, his great urban fantasy series. He's got a new serialized novel coming out next month in September called The Next, which I'm really looking forward to. Get ye to timpratt.org and prepare thyself. Also, stick around after this week's story for a special treat. We've got an author's note recorded by Tim himself, giving some background about the story Cinderlands, the inspiration, Lovecraft and otherwise, from which it came. So, without further ado, we bring you Cinderlands by Tim Pratt. Close to the end. Dexter West woke to the sound of claws skittering on hardwood floors above him, thinking in a muzzy, sleep-headed way that the upstairs neighbors must have gotten a dog, even though dogs weren't allowed, and now the horrible noise was going to keep him up all night. But as he sat up in bed, he remembered that there was no upstairs here. He'd moved out of the apartment building into a house of his own. After turning on the lamp, he went into the walk-in closet, where the noise, the scuttling, seemed loudest. A heating duct ran along the ceiling, and he pressed his ear to the metal and listened to the click and patter of tiny claws rushing along inside. Was it rats? Rats in the ducts? Rats in the walls? He banged hard on the duct with his fist, and the scuttling stopped. I'll get a cat, he said aloud. I need the company anyway. He went back to bed and dreamed of digging holes in his backyard. Holes filled with squirming, black-furred rats the size of kittens. Holes that went down forever. Earlier, Dexter crouched beneath the toxic fruit trees in his grassless backyard, turning over black earth with the spade he'd taken from the old man, and every shovelful revealed worse things. Clumps of cinders and the dust of ashes, rusting nails practically dripping tetanus, wickedly curved shards of brown glass, bullets of various sizes crusted with dirt, and a foot or so down, fragments of black stone statuary showing here the partial orbit of a life-sized eye, there a broken mouth filled with crude triangular teeth, here a tiny hand with six fingers, all clawed. Dexter looked toward the unmended fence again and said, What do you mean this used to be the Cinderlands? But the old man next door was gone. Earlier still. Dexter moved in the early spring of his 35th year. The houses on either side of his own were boarded up, and the neighborhood had the appearance of a mouth filled with missing teeth. Empty lots and empty houses outnumbered the inhabited ones three to one. But he didn't mind. After living among noisy neighbors, the silence and solitude surrounding his new life as a homeowner seemed a blessing. The faded yellow house at 65 Mumford Street was a sprawling one-story affair with additions of varying vintages sprouting from all sides. 
He loved the labyrinthine interior, despite its many flaws. Sagging air ducts from an abandoned remodel, a roof shedding shingles, cracked linoleum. It was still a bargain at the bank's price. The original owner had died, and the dissolute heirs had run the place as a sort of commune. One bank official leaned close and whispered the word cult, though she wouldn't elaborate. When the heirs vanished and stopped paying the mortgage, the bank seized the property. Dexter paid cash, using a little of his settlement money from the case against the city. A year before, he'd been attacked and beaten by police on his way to work, a case of mistaken identity. He resembled an escaped serial arsonist who'd recently burned down an officer's home. Even after buying the house, he had more than enough money to take time off and fix the place up. He was sure the neighborhood would get better, justifying the investment. The recession couldn't last forever. But in the meantime, he'd enjoy the quiet. The backyard was full of fruit trees, shading the earth so deeply that no grass could grow, and he spent the evenings in the backyard drinking beer and watching the wind stir the leaves, body aching pleasantly from painting and sanding and hammering and laying tile. After so many years teaching history to high school students who barely seemed to care about what happened to them yesterday, it was refreshing to work with his hands and see the measurable progress of that work each day. As the trees began to bloom, he looked forward to the fruit. Lemon, plum, crabapple, cherry. He decided to plant some tomatoes in the yard and was choosing between the two spots where sunlight actually touched the ground when a voice from behind the broken side fence said, I wouldn't put roots down there if I were you. An old man dressed in a faded white suit of archaic cut leaned on a walking stick and smiled affably from beneath a broad-brimmed straw hat. Hey, I didn't realize anyone lived over there. Well, at my age, I don't come out often, the man said. Uh, only when the weather is just exactly right. I saw you in that spot of sun there. Are uh, you thinking of gardening? Don't. The soil's poison. Dexter frowned. Oh, well, the trees seem healthy. Ah, oh, well, things might grow, but there's so much lead and mercury and who knows what else in that dirt. I wouldn't eat any of it. Plant in containers if you must, though, even then. He shook his head. The air's bad, too. This whole area used to be... The Cinderlands. I guess I could get the soil tested for lead. Oh, no need for all that trouble. The old man reached into his suit and, improbably, drew out a spade with a gleaming blade. Just dig down a little. You'll see. Okay. Dexter had liked his neighbors better when they didn't exist, but he took the spade and dug and found sharp, pointy, broken things, though the bits of statuary were the most disturbing. What do you mean this used to be the Cinderlands? The old man didn't answer, and when Dexter went to the fence, he was gone, and the yard over there was as derelict as ever, the house just as uninhabited-looking as before. Later, 
Dexter decided not to start a garden after all, and when the trees put forth fruit, he knew he'd made the right choice. The lemons were small, and while they were yellow, it was less the yellow of cartoon suns and more the yellow of jaundiced skin or nicotine-stained teeth. The plums seemed to rot rather than ripen, dripping off the branches in slimy clumps. The cherries were hard and shriveled like shrunken heads, while the crab apples grew so huge and fast they split their skins, and the inside of every apple was home to a vast number of worms, possibly, he thought, of a kind unknown to science. A bit later still, Dexter came home from the hardware store, unlocked both deadbolts. It paid to be safe, since thieves weren't above stripping the copper from any property, inhabited or not, and stepped inside to find unmistakable evidence of intrusion. There were scraps of paper scattered on the floor, covered with peculiar geometric diagrams and muddy footprints, and in the middle of his living room, a straw hat with a crushed crown. The back door stood open, and there were marks on the ground, as if something heavy had been dragged toward the vine-covered back fence, but the trail vanished there. He went to the neighbor's house and pounded on the door, but no one answered, and when he peered through the windows, he saw only empty rooms full of dust. He called the police to tell them he'd had an intruder, and when he gave his name, the dispatcher paused, said, Dexter West? The guy who sued the city? The reason my bosses tell me I can't get a raise this year? Uh, no, he said. The dispatcher laughed. Yeah, we'll send someone right over. You just sit and wait. Hey, you be sure to call us if your house catches on fire too, huh? Lots of my friends are firemen. And you know as well as anyone there are arsonists around. The dispatcher hung up. No one ever came. Dexter was astounded to realize he'd managed to personally anger and alienate the bureaucracy of a city, an institution normally so vast and impersonal that it was wholly unconcerned with individuals. In a way, it was quite an accomplishment. Very near the end. The scuttling in the ducts continued all summer, increasing until even pounding on the metal failed to make a difference. Dexter spent the deep darkness of the nights awake and listening, and slept through the heat of the days. Work on the house ceased. He only went to the hardware store to acquire rat poison. Hadn't he read somewhere that heart medication and rat poison worked on the same principle, by thinning the blood? He scattered the arsenic throughout all the secret places in the house, the odd-sized storage rooms, some inexplicably painted red, the little cubby holes filled with dusty blue glass bottles, the low cabinets with their strangely angled, cramped interiors. He never saw rat droppings or nibbled wires, but the noises every night told a different tale. Dexter got a cat, a sleek black one from a shelter that came already equipped with the peculiar name Ninja Man, but the animal was dead within days. He was never sure why. Maybe it had gotten into the poison, but he preferred to think it had possessed some undiagnosed heart defect or other hidden flaw. Dexter buried the animal in the yard, deep, 
though not as deep as he'd intended. About two feet down, he began to find things that looked suspiciously like knife blades made of flaked stone, and then fragments of bones that suggested his cat wasn't the first thing to be buried here in the Cinderlands. He chose to dig no deeper. Just before the end, when the scuttling crescendoed just after 3 a.m., he decided to smash the ducts. They weren't even connected to anything, just remnants of a past tenant's attempt to modernize the place with central heat and air. He'd left them in this long because he thought he might install such amenities himself someday, but the noise was overwhelming, worse tonight than ever. He hadn't slept well for weeks, convinced he heard not just rats, but also human footsteps and voices, either in the next room, or in the backyard, or in the upstairs apartment which he intermittently forgot didn't actually exist. He picked up his wrecking bar and began smashing at the ducts, leaving dents and little else, until he finally struck a seam in the metal and caused a plate to pop loose and gape open downward like a sprung trap door. Dark shapes spilled forth from the duct like a greasy black flood, fur and wriggling noses and tails, and he fell back against the wall, clutching his steel bar, terrified. The rats, dozens, scores, hundreds, would attack him. But they kept running through his open bedroom door, into the hallway, toward the kitchen and the back door. He imagined his house filled, infested, overrun by rats. But they weren't rats. Or they weren't entirely rats. He'd seen a program on television once about parasitic wasps. They attacked cockroaches, injected venom into their tiny roach brains, and took control of the insects, driving them like six-legged golf carts into their nests, where the roaches became paralyzed incubators for wasp eggs. Something similar had been done to these rats. There were glistening, greenish-black growths on their necks and heads, foreign tissue sometimes obscuring their eyes, sometimes extending down their backs to their tails. The growths looked wet, and they pulsed, and they might have been a sort of fungus or horrible external tumor. Except for the eyes. Every growth had a single, marble-sized blue eye somewhere on its mass, gazing backward. The eyes blinked and moved in unison, as if they were part of the same organism, temporarily separated. Dexter dropped his wrecking bar and fled, and since he could only flee through the door, the same door the rats were pouring through endlessly, how could there be so many? He tried to leap through the door over the flood. He leapt well, but the leap had to end, and he came down in his bare feet among the rats. They squealed and twisted and rushed away from him. He lost his footing and stumbled through the dark toward the kitchen, where his back door stood open. The rats and their passengers racing through the opening and away. Dexter stared through the door into the yard, unable to comprehend what he was seeing. The human eye and brain have ways of coping with size and distance, 
Objects seen up close appear larger, and as those objects move away, they appear to shrink, growing even smaller as they recede into the distance. So the great ship that looms large as a building while you're standing on the dock becomes a tiny speck of blackness as it vanishes over the distant horizon. The rats were exactly the opposite. They looked normal-sized up close, but as they streamed into his yard, getting farther away, they seemed to become larger, until, in violation of all laws of nature and perspective, they were easily the size of cars by the time they reached the back fence, the eyes on their backs as big as tires, all staring not at him, but past him. Just before they should have crashed into the fence, the enormous rats vanished as if they'd turned a corner that didn't exist or fallen into a deep, hidden hole. Dexter stood aside, staring down at the rats as they fled, afraid to lift his gaze again to witness their impossible growth. After a long time, it seemed like hours Though it couldn't have been so long, surely. The scuttling in the ducts ended, and the final few rats disappeared into the backyard. He watched the last ones go, growing from rat-sized when they left the house, to dog-sized when they were halfway across the yard, to pony-sized and bigger still as they reached the fence, until finally the last one vanished. He realized a breath he hadn't realized he was holding. He shut his door, engaged the locks, and only then asked himself, how had the door opened? Had the press of the rats somehow shoved it wide? Maybe the old man who didn't actually live next door had been there to open the door for the creatures, or maybe... Something in his bedroom thumped like a great weight hitting the floor. Frozen by the back door, listening, Dexter suddenly wondered, what were the rats running from? He had no doubt the creatures were fleeing, either in terror or under orders from the staring growths on their backs. Dexter couldn't imagine where they'd originally come from, certainly not within his walls, nor could he tell where they were going. They were simply passing through. Whether his house was along some mysterious right of way or merely a hastily chosen detour, he couldn't know, but he was sure of one thing. This was an escape route. So what exactly were the creatures escaping from? Another thump, this one louder, and Dexter began to open the locks, his fingers clumsy, his hands slick with sweat, the thoughts scuttling and skittering in his mind as instantaneously as the claws of a thousand fleeing rats. Run, run, run. The last lock turned, the door yawned open, the trees in the backyard rustled in the wind, and the old man from next door, now hatless, leaned on his walking stick by the back fence, face lost in the shadow, shaking his head. 
Dexter sprinted from the house, but the back fence seemed to get smaller as he ran, and the old man seemed farther away with each step, and Dexter realized, before he fell, before something fell upon him, radiating ancient, indifferent heat, that he'd never reach the corner, or hole, or exit in time. That he was too small, and the world, and all the things in it, were just too big. This is Tim Pratt, here to tell you a little bit about my story, Cinderlands. I recently moved to a new apartment in Berkeley, and while it has a lovely backyard full of fruit trees, the soil right around the back door is full of unpleasant things. Every time I turn over a shovel full of earth, I find rusty nails, bits of broken glass, mysterious chunks of metal, and other detritus. Not long ago I heard one of the neighbors say, this whole area used to be the Cinderlands. I have no idea what that means exactly, but it certainly sounds ominous. In truth, I don't want to find out what it means, because it's probably something entirely innocuous and boring having to do with railroads. I have upstairs neighbors, and one night this strange skittering clacking noise started up above me while I was lying in bed. I couldn't figure out what it was, and it turns out the neighbors were watching a dog for a friend, and what I heard was its claws clattering on the hardwood floors. But my mind had turned to far more ominous possibilities. So when I started thinking about writing a Lovecraftian story, I took all those various elements from my recent life and fused them together with a bit of Lovecraft's story, The Rats and the Walls, along with notions of ancient cultists and weird artifacts. I'd also been reading Laird Barron's new collection, Occultation, which is full of creepy Lovecraftian fiction, and his work influenced the story as well. I hope you liked it. There you go. Thanks, Tim. Remember what Lovecraft said, the one test of the really weird was. Whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread, a subtle attitude of awed listening, as if for the beating of black wings, or the scratching of outside shapes or entities of the universe's outside rim. I think in that light, this story goes in for the kill. What do you think? Register with our discussion forums and let us know. We here at the Drabblecast are particularly proud of the awesomely intelligent, creative, supportive, clever, and friendly fan community that's built up in our discussion forums. Talk about the fiction and story discussion. Check out the weirdest, grossest, funniest, and or awesomest things happening in the world today in Drabble News. Read and post comments about other short fiction, or write your own short stories, 100-word Drabbles, or 100-character Twobbles in the Drabble public domain. There's lots going on. Speaking of 100-character twobbles, let's get to this week's winner, a tie between listeners Priestess for writing the story and Flodo for the great title, The Girl with the Dagon Tattoo. She was excited about her new shoulder tattoo, displaying it proudly, until it began to whisper insidiously in her ear.
Yikes. That's when you get a tattoo of an angel for the other shoulder to whisper virtuous suggestions into your other ear. That's how free will works. Ask Bugs Bunny. Got Twitter? Follow us at the Drabblecast. Get the weekly winner early each week and find out what's going on in the twisted, behind-the-scenes world of the Drabblecast. It's far less interesting than I've just led you to believe. So hey, we couldn't do this show at all if awesome folks like you at home didn't pitch in and donate to us via the support links on our website, Drabblecast.org. It's true, but we couldn't do it anywhere near as consistent or presumably as top-notch without the uber-generous help of people like our kick-ass donor of the week this week, Peter J. Peter lives just a few miles outside of London with his cat, CJ, who's possibly the smartest cat never to have appeared in a cartoon. From his window, he can see France and the Eiffel Tower. Or is that Canvey Island oil refinery? Hmm. When he's not filling his days with the things he laughably calls work, he's writing a self-help book that's called How to Be Happy, and a novel snappily entitled The Good Guy's Guide to Getting Girls. You can read snippets of both at his website, justicing.com. Nice. I want to get girls to clean my stove and do my laundry. I didn't see that info in any of the snippets, though. Guess I'll have to actually buy the book. It'll be worth it, though. One can only rotate one's dirty boxer brief so many times. I'm starting to smell like my stove. Thanks, Peter. You're the man. Also, special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Chelsea Reagan. Chelsea lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and she's studying art at the Maryland Institute College of Art and Design. You can find more of Chelsea's work at ChelseaReagan.com. Hey, if you're going to Dragon Con in Atlanta Labor Day weekend, which is coming up, shoot us an email or let us know on the discussion forums. We're meeting up, having the annual Drabblecast get-together lunch at Mama Ninfa's, everyone's favorite barely edible Mexican restaurant, on Saturday, September 4th. We'd love to chill with you. Drop us a line. We'll hook you up with details. All right, weirdos, that's our show. Remember, it's produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means share it all you like, but don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, and don't you dare plant tomatoes in it. The soil's poison, you hear? Poison! We'll see you next week for original Lovecraft-inspired fiction by David D. Levine, winner of last year's Drabblecast People's Choice Award. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you not to look in other people's lunch bags. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.